Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Jason Lutz as a guest. He's a renowned cartoonist and graphic novelist. And today we're going to discuss his book entitled Berlin. It appeared withdrawn and quarterly in 2019. However, this book actually represents a compilation of three different graphic novels published from 2001 until 2018 as a trilogy. The book, uh, Berlin, is a masterful narrative about mostly fictional characters that captures the realities of political, cultural, and social life during the uh, tragic final phases of the Weimar Republic. This book uh, won numerous awards, and this is a just result for over two decades of work. For example, Lutz cleaned up at the 2019 Excellence in Graphic Literature Awards, where this book received not only the prize for Book of the Year, but also, and I think this will be interesting to a lot of our listeners, the best in educational comics in the category of fiction for adults. Also, a real point of pride is the book won the 2019 Vermont Book Award. For those teacher scholars out there in the audience, this book received a very positive review in the American uh, Historical Review as well. So on a personal note, I read Berlin in the earliest days of the pandemic. Uh, I had received the book uh, during the holiday season in, at the end of 2019 and hadn't had a chance to read it until then. Uh, the, I had a couple of weeks at the start of the pandemic where uh, I wasn't teaching. Um, and I was reading it as I was shifting a course about modern Germany into from an on-the-ground format into an online format. Needless to say, the book really spoke to me in the context of uh, and, and some of the angst associated with those early days of the pandemic, and I'm really going to consider it seriously in future courses. So without any further preamble, hello, Jason. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. To start, I was wondering if you could discuss how you became a, a graphic novelist, first of all. I think that'll be really interesting to a lot of our listeners. Um, but on... New Books in German Studies, we're all going to be really interested to know how you got interested in the Weimar Republic, especially. Uh, you created this novel, and it really successfully depicts many aspects of 1920s Berlin. And Jason, I have to say, it leaves a lot of us academic historians a little bit envious. You know, we think we're the people who know how to write history, but uh, like you have a format here that is so much more multifaceted than the way most of us write. Um, so I, I have to admit to a little professional jealousy for how you captured the era. But uh, I think the audience would, would love to know, you know, you know, how did you get into creating graphic narratives, first of all, and what were the origins of this German history project? Um, yeah, well, to, to the first question, um, I grew up reading and making comics. I mean, I remember from a very, very early age before I could even... Um, before I could write, I was copying like old Avengers comics and my mom was lettering them for me. So before I could even form letters, I was, I was copying comics down and I, it was a kind of interest and a love that persisted through, um, through high school. And then, um, and my earliest influences were things like Tintin. Um, like there's a big European influence in the form of um, Hergé's Tintin books. And um, hmm. it was sort of Tintin plus mainstream American superhero and Western comics. Those were my kind of earliest influences. And um, when it came time to apply to college, uh, I thought that I could, I, I was a fairly decent, um, I was interested in creative stuff. So I, and I loved to write as well as draw. Um, 
And, but I, I think I conceived of them as sort of two different uh, areas of expertise and that in order to go study um, beyond high school, I should choose one of them. And I figured that I was a better artist than I was a writer. Um, so I applied to uh, only one school. I applied to the Rhode Island School of Design because I was totally, you know, kind of not prepared for college. <laughs> Didn't do any of my, uh, <laughs> any of the foundational work necessary, but luckily I got in and I deferred, worked for a year to save up money. And I ended up going to, um, uh, to RISD. And, um, when I did that, I gave up comics. I thought, okay, now it's time to get serious about art and be like a fine artist and study, you know, do the things, do make the kind of art that adults are supposed to make. Um, so put aside childish things, uh, <laughs> is how I thought of it. And very quickly, I think within the first year there, which was an amazing first year, it was a great experience. Um, I just got exposed to all these other, you know, ways of making art and uh, different forms of expression. I quickly realized that I really did want to tell stories and um, I didn't want to, you know, the closest I could get outside of comics was like either illustration, commercial illustration or kind of narrative painting. Um, but I kept, I found myself drawn back to comics and um so I started up a student comic book and worked with a bunch of fellow um, uh, first and second year students there to, uh, to, to do stuff. There were no classes taught, uh, no classes were teaching comics. Um, uh, but I and, you know, maybe a dozen like-minded people were really into it. So um, we started doing that. And then I kind of never looked back. And I graduated um, in 1991. I got a job as a production assistant at a comic book publisher. And through that kind of got a view into the whole independent alternative comic scene. So um, step by step, I kind of um, worked my way into being a professional, which was very hand to mouth, very kind of starving artist kind of process. And um, shortly, let's see, around 1994 or early 90s, I... Um, I started to draw a newspaper, a weekly strip for a paper in Seattle, Washington called The Stranger, which is a um, alternative weekly that's still going today. And um, uh, I, I wanted to do a long form comics story, which I'd never done before. And um, I chose kind of a, a kind of um, portmanteau title. Um, I called it Jar of Fools, which had no particular meaning, but it was kind of like a suggestive title that I thought I could have a lot of fun improvising within. And then week to week, one page at a time, I drew this long, ongoing, serialized, improv improvised story. And by the end of two years, I had a little graphic novel. I, all those pages were collected and they were published as a book. Um, so I finished that book. And I, during that book, it was also my kind of self-education and self... Um, I sort of built up my understanding of the medium and came to sort of grips with who I was, what my capabilities were as an artist and a writer. And I got to the end of it and it was, it was a very satisfying experience. And um, I was super excited about the medium and about the possibilities. Like I, I felt like I finally had come to the understanding that comics were just words and pictures. They weren't, they didn't have all, they didn't need the baggage of all the genres that had popularized the art form. Um, at root, it was just this kind of really simple form of expression. And once I got to that point, I realized I could tell any kind of story I wanted to. And the idea was super exciting to me, but I was also like, I don't know when I was like 24 and didn't really have much to say, <laughs> um, you know, in the sense, you know, I hadn't lived much of a life yet. And um, it was kind of, a, it's kind of a classic problem of creative people in their early twenties where, you know, you have all this energy, but you don't necessarily know how to know what you want to articulate with it. Um, 
And I was, so I was in that state of mind where I was like, oh my God, like I could do any kind of comic I want to. I could do like a science fiction comic. I could do an adventure comic. Um, what's it going to be? And I, um, I was leafing through an a, a, a issue of uh, The Nation magazine and I came across an ad, uh, and like a half page advertisement um, one day just at random. And the, the ad was for a book called Bertolt Brecht's Berlin, um, which was just a kind of scrapbook of photos with... Um, very kind of cursory visual look at the um, at Berlin in the twenties, and um, I just read the ad copy, and there was one line in the ad copy that was something I, I've tried to track down this ad since, and I haven't been able to find it. But in my memory, there's this one line that went, um, and uh, and the jazz bands played on as the world spun out of control, hmm. and that was such an evocative, evocative idea image that I read that. And I said, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. That's my next book. And it's going to be 600 pages long. <laughs> and I made that decision uh, before I knew anything about the subject matter beyond, I, I really didn't know anything about Berlin beyond, you know, I'd read a little bit of Isherwood and I think I'd seen like half of Cabaret. Right. So I like really had no clear idea of what was happening. Um, I didn't even, I didn't know what the Weimar Republic was. Like I had no idea. Hmm. So I saw this ad for this book and I thought, that's it. Um, for better or for worse since then, I've learned that all of my creative decisions have to do with a kind of um, random impulse that I follow to the bitter end. <laughs> <laughs> and in this case, that impulse, uh, I followed it for 22 years. Um, so I made that decision. And as I was wrapping up this book, um, the Star of Fools book, and getting it ready for publication, I started researching um, Berlin. Um, so it, it, to answer the second part of your question, the original feeling was totally impulsive. It was, it felt at random to me. Right. But of course, all of your impulses, um, especially creative impulses are driven by some kind of unconscious need or desire that you can't, you don't really understand necessarily at first. And it took mm -hmm. me a long time to figure that out. Um, and over the years, what I realized is that a couple of things were happening. One was, um, I grew up on the West coast in California. Um, well, I grew till the age of 10 in Montana and then high school, junior high and high school was in um, California in the Bay area. So very far away from the East coast, very far away from Europe, very far away from um, like Jewish culture and history. I'm not Jewish. Um, I, I had friends who were, but I wouldn't have known because in California at the time, it wasn't like something people talked about really. But there was a point in my high school history education where the history teacher who, um, who was fond just as an aside of going, um, getting a, a Slurpee from um, the 7-Eleven and, and pouring a fifth of vodka into it during class. <laughs> so this was a man who was not happy with his job and my heart goes out to him now. Um, but one day when we were covering World War II and the Holocaust, uh, he put a VHS cassette in the, in the VCR and left to go get his big gulp. And I, whose experience of World War II up until that point had been war movies on television, um, and maybe some like uh, maybe some comics, you know, maybe Sergeant Rock or some American comics that kind of um, uh, treated the war in a very kind of you know uh, broad and glorified way. Um, in short order, I was watching black and white footage of bodies being bulldozed into trenches um, mm. and trying to figure out how that fit into my understanding of that era. Um, I mean, I knew very vaguely, and my memory, if my memory is right, I knew, I, I knew vaguely that this terrible thing had happened, but 
World War II in, 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 in my conception of it was just about, you know, the battles and the liberation of Europe. And there wasn't a whole lot of information about um, what the Nazis had really been up to. Um, so it kind of, I think, and that was it. That was high school. And then I went to art school, right? So I think on an unconscious level, I was, I had this deep uh, need to understand the circumstances leading up to that. Like how, you know, after I saw that, then I went to um, RISD and there I did my own homework and read more and watched more. And, um, and I was on the East coast at that point. I knew people who um, were Jewish, whose like grandparents had, you know, survived the concentration camps and that kind of thing. So um, in that way, I kind of, learned more about the situation. And in retrospect, looking back at this impulsive decision, I think that on some level I was just trying to educate myself. Like I really wanted to know, I really wanted to understand the circumstances leading up, um, leading up to that. Like, like what, what, how do human beings do that to each other? Why did this happen at this particular time and place? Um, so that is my long and, um, multi-level response to that question yeah yeah thank you and it's very interesting to hear how kind of uh you know you were operating on two different levels that on the one hand uh this this topic was kind of an impulsive decision but on the other there was uh, a lot of depth that lay beneath that on the surface but um uh, i i do want to follow up a little bit and ask about how you researched the book i mean you did you captured the era really well and you got a very impressive bibliography at the end but can you talk about the resources that helped you the most as you uh, kind of depicted 1920s Berlin? And particularly, are there any, you know, either historians or other artists that you'd like to, to kind of shout out here um, as uh, ma- major influences? Yeah, well, I did about, um, so this was like, I think I started the first book and like, I think the first chapter came out in 96. So I think wow. I did about two years of research just reading everything I could lay my hands on. This is before the internet was really a, a resource. And um, so I would go to all the used bookstores in Seattle and go to all the libraries and just find everything I could about German history, European history. And I, I the only rule I've made for myself is that it, I didn't want to read anything about what happened after 1933. Like I just didn't want to, I didn't want to, I wanted to immerse myself in what the time period was like for the people who were living then. So I didn't want to have any, um, uh, any understanding. I didn't want to take in too much information from, from after, um, Hitler became chancellor because I wanted, you know, to try to keep that, um, that period before that kind of intact in my, in my brain. Um, so very quickly I realized the hardest thing was finding images of stuff that wasn't what you'd find on a postcard, right? Like, um, there's plenty of uh, paintings and um, photographs of the cathedrals and the landmarks, but there's not a whole lot when it comes to working class apartments or um, back alleys and that kind of thing. And that's the stuff I really needed because I really wanted to get into the street level lives of these people. So um, the greatest resource ended up being resources ended up being um, a lot of paintings and drawings by artists working at the time who might be making some form of social commentary through their drawing, but just incidentally, you know, their subject would be in a situation where I could see what, um, what a back alley looked like. Oh, it's like filled with firewood or, um, you know, what the, the kind of, um, the kind of um, fencing that might go around a public park or what a public urinal looked like, like all these little background details that I um, just could find at, you know, in, 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 
in paintings or drawings or photographs that weren't about those things, but those things happened to show up in them. Those were very, very valuable. There was no single source that was great for that. Um, in terms, although the drawings of um, George Gross were um, very compelling, really hard to use his art as a kind of basis for realistic rendering because- Yeah, he, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, the expressionism there. You you know you have no idea what kind of proportions you know that 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 <laughs> kind of ladder back chair somebody's sitting in. I'm not really sure if that you know it has that narrow of a look to it. So his work I find I found more inspirational from an emotional perspective. But um, and there were little details like clothing and you know suspender buttons and stuff like that which I could draw from. But it was this interesting kind of active imagination where I, I would gather as much visual material as possible, and then I'd have to kind of picture or, or or extrapolate what might be in between in between things um you know as much as possible hewing to um that you know i could i could the more i could point the actual reference the more confident i felt but there were definitely times when i was making stuff up visually um and and in other ways too obviously it's an active imagination there's only so much i can get out of books written in english i don't i don't read german um so I, I was limited in that way. In terms of um, books that I read, I think the two biggest ones that were big for me was there's um, something called the Weimar Republic Sourcebook, yeah. which is a collection of essays and articles and manifestos um, from the time by people living at the time. And that was amazing. That was wonderful because it's like a kind of um, almost like a collage of, of culture and society. So that was really um, great kind of peek into it was, I, I think that was I, I set out from the very beginning to tell a very to cover sort of broad ground to try to show people from different walks of life to have many different characters with many different experiences so that book was a great was great because it it has that form of of um collecting a bunch of work from a variety of a variety of sources and then um along similar lines but in the realm of fiction was Berlin Alexander plots by Alfred de Blen, which yeah not only was really super rich with um small details um you know he'll he'll have like a very impressionistic description of like um uh Potsdamer plots or something and included in it will be like a copy from newspaper and then stuff that's on billboards and then um just an amazing um i guess i go back to this word of impressionistic uh, uh feeling of the city so it was great both in its details and also in the kind of overall feeling that it conjured. Um, that was really huge and, and had a direct impact on not just the, um, I got, I got on the, um, the way that I would tell the story. I think I didn't realize that was at the time, but um, that book and wings of desire by Vin vendors had a big impact on the, my kind of narrative approach. People sometimes describe my work as cinematic um, and there are, aspects of the way I tell the story that are drawn from um, Berlin Alexander Plotz and Wings of Desire. Excellent. Um, and at this point, I was hoping we could uh, jump into some of the content of your novel. And you have two characters around which much of the narrative revolves, uh, Martin Muller and Kurt Severing. And the former is an art student from Cologne who's spending time in Berlin in the novel. And the latter is a journalist and a keen observer of Weimar politics. So I found both characters really empathetic. I mean, that's part of what made the novel move for me. Um, they were, you know, total creatures of the 1920s, in my opinion. You know, I think it really, um, 
they, they really match the era well. And as readers, we have this sense of impending doom. I mean, we know that these uh, characters are headed toward a regime in which both of them would struggle terribly. Um, but there's also a human element to the story. There's just uh, their struggle and their sadness during a tumultuous era, of course, uh, because part of what makes this book speak to a lot of people today. Um, you know, they, they, have, they had anxiety, they had uncertainty, they had rootlessness, right? And isn't that what we're all feeling during the pandemic and, you know, various other things we've been going through? Um, so, uh, yeah, I just was curious if you could share, you know, how you created these two figures and how you successfully si- situated them in the, in the Weimar era. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, looking back on it, um, it was interesting to kind of reflect on how I, I arrived at them, those particular, those two particular characters and how at the time, again, there was this kind of impulsive aspect to it. But I, so I'd done all this research, read books and books and books and, and sort of absorbed all this information and kind of allowed it to percolate. And I was taking notes and making little drawings. And um, I, I did, there was this kind of high concept approach at the beginning, which was like, okay, I don't know exactly what, the content of my story is, but I know that this is the situation. I know it's starting um, in 1929 and I know um, that it's going to play out over a number of years and that there are certain real historical events that are going to be like the tent poles that, that kind of hold the story up. But I, I, I didn't have a specific, you know, path that I was going to intentionally walk. I wanted to keep the story itself alive as I told it so that, um, if I didn't know what was going to happen next, then hopefully the reader would be along for that as well, right? So if I kept it exploratory, um, that the hope was that that would carry over to the um, the people who um, chose to read the book. Um, so my initial high concept was I'm going to have a woman who's young and an artist, and a man who's older and a writer. Um, her medium is pictures and his medium is words and my medium is comics. And I'm going to, you know, the relationship between words and pictures is going to be this thing that I explore through them on the stage of Berlin. Um, and luckily that kind of fell by the wayside pretty quickly. Um, I think that if I had somehow tried to sustain that, it would have just been too, um, too kind of caught up in its own pretension or, um, you know, like working with these, with this metaphor that would kind of distract from, um, whatever the kind of um, the lifeblood or the, you know, whatever the was going to move, the, whatever the story was going to make the story work had to be less kind of highbrow than that, less, mm. di- less kind of distance than that. Um, so I have a long history with um, uh, tabletop role-playing games, <laughs> <laughs> going back to Dungeons and Dragons in the seventies, late seventies. And the thing that playing those games taught me, the thing I learned was that um, in those games, it's, there's different characters and you're kind of improvising interactions between these characters, not unlike improvisational theater or whatnot. Um, but I trained my, those skills doing that. Um, and in that game, you have to inhabit the kind of, you have to put yourself in the shoes of different characters all the time. So my idea was um, to, to come up with these characters that have these backgrounds, Kurt and Marta, and then kind of, set them on the stage of Berlin and watch them go. And, and as I watched them, you know, I would shift from one to the other. And when I was with one, I'd put myself in their shoes and see what they're confronted with and make decisions according to how I think they would make decisions and then switch back to the other character. And then 
allow further characters to enter the story as they're encountered and they seem interesting or significant. Um, so it was this funny kind of process where when you look at the comic, it looks incredibly, um, you know, I have a very, what some people call a very cold drawing style, which I, I don't mind being described that way. And it's very, um, you know, everything's in little boxes and it's very controlled and uh, um, there's a fair amount of detail. So it has this very um, uh, engineered aspect to it when you look at it, but the story itself and how I arrived at it came very um, intuitively. I, I followed them around. I paid attention to who they um, interacted with and how they responded. You know, I say this as if I wasn't the person making those decisions, but like that's, <laughs> that's how it is. Like you're all, all you're doing, all your characters are part of you, um, and you're just watching different parts of your own brain interact with itself um so that was the basic approach and then um you know at at the kind of one third mark of this uh, uh supposed 600 pages i was going for was going to be the mayday demonstrations was going to be um bloody may and then at the two thirds mark was going to be um the elections of 1930 um with those as the kind of milestones my job was to follow these characters improvisationally from one from one point to the next. All right, Jason. Uh, I, I have a number of questions that deal with, you know, content that come kind of from the perspective of an historian and, and, a, and a consumer of your work. But I did, I, I wanted to give you the chance to discuss in more detail some of your artistic decisions. And while I'm a lover of graphic books, uh, I don't claim any particular particular expertise there, you know. So I, I, um, you know, I question my own ability to question you on the matter. <laughs> but um, therefore, I'm going to rely on someone else. I'm going to uh, share something with you that struck me about uh, Daniel uh, Magalo's review of your work that appeared in the American Historical Review. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. But he noted, uh, and I quote here, your uh, stark black and white drawing, which evoke expressionist woodcuts. And he went on in the review to uh, comment on how your choice uh, to draw the book in this way, especially to draw it in black and white, it helped to draw uh, or attract the reader to the sharp uh, social, political and cultural contrasts of the era. Um, So I was wondering if you agreed with this assessment of your drawing, first of all, and uh, if you could comment further kind of on the decision to make this a black and white book, especially. Yeah. Um, um, that, that was kind commentary. Um, I wouldn't say my art is, is reminiscent of wood expressionist woodcuts. It's, it's not expressionist really much at all. <laughs> um, however I do, there are some instances where I kind of, uh, copy Franz Masuriel, um, uh, I'm a great admirer of um, the wordless novels of Franz Masurio and people like Lynn Ward. Um, mm-hmm. My drawing itself is quite, um, it's not, it's this, I wouldn't say the opposite of expressionist, but it's much more in the realm of, for me, it feels like an arrangement of elements. It's not so much how the marks are made. My, my marks are quite, um, um, I think I approached it as a documentary film. I, I just wanted to sort of depict things as straightforwardly and um, unromantically as possible and mm-hmm. that the whatever kind of energy or poetry was in there came more from how things were kind of juxtaposed um, as opposed to the, the drawing itself. Um, to the black and white question, uh, partly it was an economic, con- you know, but in the early 90s, yeah. independent comics were just mostly black and white because it was cheaper. Um, 
since then, one of the things I really value that's not connected to the um, economic question is um, when you look at a comics page, you know, it's a bunch of drawings in little boxes. And um, when it's just black on white, when it's just blacking on white paper, there's a couple things that are happening for me. One is um, the, it, it's very, there's very little distance between what I made in my studio and what the reader receives. Cause I just, I'm working with black ink on white paper here. Right. And then that gets sent to the printer and it gets turned into black ink on white paper. So there's a kind of, more direct connection, I think, to the reader. It's very, the thing that you look at in the book is it's shrunk down, but it's very close to the thing that's I'm looking at on my, my drawing table. So the color process often involves, you know, either computer color, which is a digital thing, or even if you're doing like some other form of color, you're, it's this whole other step you go through to apply color to things. Um, so on the one hand, I feel like there's a, it's a more kind of direct connection. And the other thing is I feel like when it's black and white, it, 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 there's more room for it to kind of, speak its own language and when when um the white of the page is is the white you're seeing within the panels itself then i think it, you're more able to kind of immerse yourself in it when when i read full color comics and there's color contained by a panel um there's a there's a kind of distance that um, a greater distance that exists between between me and the contents of the panel so black, color comics can be beautiful and they can have a lot of emotional impact because of their because of the colors employed um but i think along with that also comes there's also this reproduction thing where like um color reproduction often um there's like a an additional kind of level that comes into play there so this is a really subtle thing i'm talking about but um mm -hmm. and it may be a rationalization <laughs> <laughs> uh but that's kind of how i feel about it and i um so the initial decision was i think just based on the fact that it was cheaper but um, in the end, I I got I was pretty happy with it with it just being in black and white. And and you the decisions you make are all about like it's just this binary decision, right? Like I mean, there was shading in there in the form of cross hatching, but like you're you are forced when you're just working with black and white to really kind of reduce things. Um, and I I enjoy that challenge. Yeah, yeah, great. Um... And so I've got a, my next question is a little bit of a longer one. And, uh, but, but part of it is, is a comment and then, then it, it leads to a question. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, both the Trump era and the, the current period of uh, global populism around the world um, has led to this heightened interest in the Weimar Republic. Um and I, I hope that that has boosted your sales. I imagine it has, but you would know that that better than me. Um, but I, I noticed that right around the time when this book came out as the trilogy, the the larger book, I, um, I, that it that it appeared at this almost the same time as the the Netflix television series set in the Weimar period um, called Babylon Berlin. I, I really have to assume that a lot of uh, people in, in the audience uh, of, a, of a podcast called New Books in German Studies are familiar with that show. And I, I did notice some similarities in the narratives, which were really interesting to me. Um, so certainly, number one uh, that really jumped out at me is this connection between Cologne and Berlin. Both in the show and in your book, you have this character who migrates from Cologne to Berlin. Uh, in, in your case, that was Marta Muller. In the, in the case of uh, the show, which was actually based on some books, uh, Gary Onrat is, is the figure in the show. But um, but these characters, they go to Berlin and, you know, there's some culture shock or they're viewing it somewhat as an outsider to the capital city. 
Um, and Berlin had this, you know, really unique, it still does today, but especially in the twenties had this very unique status within Germany. Um, but, but I've spent a lot of time in Cologne and so I've been interested that it's viewed in this era somehow as this, you know, polar opposite of Berlin or, or, uh, something like that. Uh, the book also, it looks at, um, uh, a journalist who's trying to uncover, you know, secret plans by the military to subvert. Uh, you know, peace treaties, international agreements uh, after World War One, and, and try to illicitly have the country rearm. That's that's a part of your plot and a part of the the show. Uh, and, and then finally, the both the show and your book, and this is the thing I might ask you to comment on. Um, they they both look at. Uh, what in German was called Blutmai or Bloody May, and, and that episode is examined extensively. Uh, and so our, for our listeners who don't know, you know, Bloody May was this violent suppression of communist demonstrations on May Day in 1929. And, and this was done by the the police, but uh, it's important to understand that it was the the Social Democratic Party on the left that really was in control of the the um, the. The, the suppression of, of this communist rally. So it really depicts a fissure on the left of the political spectrum between social democracy on the one hand and, and revolutionary communism on the other hand. And uh, part of what I like about your book, right, is the way in which pictures can really, um, you know, capture something that it could take several pages of text to write about. So one example that I looked at in your Bloody May depiction was this image of Kurt Severing, one of your main characters, um, and uh, Erwin Immenthaler, who's a, a less major figure, but they're they're both just staring at each other in, in such disdain as they talk about this division between the social democrats and the communists. Uh, so uh, you can really speak about any of these three overlaps that I kind of identified, or if you see others between your book and the show. But uh, I guess I was particularly interested in hearing you talk about Bloody May as this point of focus and you know, uh, why, why that seems to really capture our imagination today in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a bit of a blessing and a curse and more of a curse that my book sales might have gone up thanks to the writing. <laughs> of populism. <laughs> uh, I remember I was finishing the last chapter during the 2016 elections and it was like unreal to, um, to, to have those things happen, um, concurrently. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, when I was, when I did all that research, um, that event really stood out to me, not just because historians, you know, had pointed to it as a kind of clear and dramatic kind of turning point, but, um, just wondering about all the people involved, you know, wondering about, um, um, sort of, uh, what it takes to even undertake a, um, a protest of that scale, like what, what it means to kind of, um, uh, stand up uh, to authority. There was a ban on public demonstrations that the the communists violated that day, which is why the police were out in force. But um, you know, all these questions I, around the same time that I was drawing that sequence, um, the WTO demonstrations were happening in Seattle. So, like right outside huh. my front door, um, very similar stuff was going down. Um, uh, people were, you know, sort of. Um, having violent clashes with the police. Um, you know, thankfully nobody was like shot and killed, but, um, it had a real resonance with, with my actual day-to-day life at the time. Um, so, uh, you know, it's this kind of touchstone. It's, um, 
it, it has all the elements that you describe and um, researching it, I just became interested in trying to figure out how it happened. Um, you know, these things don't ever go as as planned and they don't ever, um, I mean, this the kind of current, the, the insurrection in our own country that happened on January 6th, you know, similar, yeah. similar a situation, but kind of flipped where the police just were not equipped to deal with the problem. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's messy. And I was interested in that, right? Um, it happened on a great, um, and it, as an illustration, as a kind of uh, expression of the frustrations and, um, you know, there's sure there's political ideology, but there's also just individual personal um, choices and, and frustrations in trying to act on those. How does that, how, how does the individual contribute to this larger thing? Um, and then what are the circumstances that contribute to it becoming such a disaster? That all became super interesting to me. Um, it's funny about Volker Kutcher and his his uh, books that Babylon Berlin is based on. He actually was a reader of my comic in the nineties. Huh. Huh. <laughs> um, huh. <laughs> he's actually a big comics fan, and my comic had been published in Germany in translation. And he has admitted to me that it was it was a little bit of an inspiration for his own books. Um, oh, interesting. My depiction of Bloody May had uh, an effect on his uh, approach to it, which is totally bizarre because that's like, you know, like here I am, like I'm in my in my at that point I was in my late twenties, living in Seattle, Washington, never even been to Germany, and and somebody in Germany was reading my book and like <laughs> finding um, something of interest in it, which was um, incredibly gratifying to hear. I met him a couple years ago when I I'm toured with my book over there. He's a lovely man. Um, so there was a, I think there was a little bit of a, um, but not only, so it's not that, I'm not saying that like his books were inspired by mine at all, but he, they, um, he did, he does say that they influenced his approach to some of the material. I think that generationally, so him and I are roughly the same age. And I think that there's this kind of, especially in Germany, this, this desire to come to terms with these historical events, right? Um, yeah. His approach was through a kind of uh, more of a pulpy murder mystery kind of um uh, style novel and um but i think that there's it's not a coincidence that um he and i both became fascinated in this subject him you know uh, there there's definitely overlap in our reasons but for him there's of course this this deep kind of cultural connection to it um so um and as i mentioned that was one of the two kind of main tent poles of the story i, I was working towards that event happening um so how I got there and how the characters got there um, was something I figured out kind of one page at a time. But uh, I always knew that that was going to be the end of the of um, at the end of eight chapters that that was going to happen. So I had to kind of uh, get to that point. And uh, I, I think the bigger question, you know, that whole struggle, like the potential of the Weimar Republic and how it fell apart um, horrifically, it, it was fascinating to me to come to understand that like. In the void left by a monarchy, right in the vacuum of a of a um, authoritarian state, like what happens? Like it turns out that a lot of people don't want to think for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that a lot of people like to be told um, uh, that uh, somebody else is going to make the decisions for them, and uh, as long as you're on board with that and you agree that you're uh, you and your tribe are superior to everyone else, then, uh, you know, the people that are pulling those levers of power can, can get away with a, a lot. Um, 
And it was more complicated then just because of, you know, I think in the Reichstag at that point, there were something like, I can't remember the numbers now, but it's like 26 different political parties or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, it's just, that was another thing that just blew my mind, right? Like um, there was a political party for every segment of the population. And that was one of the things Hitler used as a, you know, he, he said, can you believe this? <laughs> we are not 26. We're one Germany, right? Like, um, like playing upon that, that need that people have to, to be like all in this, all agreeing and moving forward for some joint effort, like for some cause that everybody wants to believe in. Um, all of that stuff was super fascinating to me because I was just like a white kid from the suburbs who, you know, had never really even thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I, it was really interesting to hear about your, 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 uh, uh, connection to Babylon Berlin, actually, uh, that it wasn't just a happenstance that there, there are some similar similarities there. My favorite thing, if I can interrupt you, Michael, for a yeah, second. please. I was at a punk rock vegan, um, basement bar <laughs> in, um, Hanover, I think. And, uh, doing like a book signing and, um, a young guy, he must've been 27 or 28 years old, came up to me afterwards and like got my book signed, you know, he had me sign my book and he's like, Hey, I'm the visual effects supervisor for Babylon Berlin. <laughs> and I was like, what are you kidding me? And he's like, yeah. He said, and I want you to know, I think that your, your depiction of the Mayday massacre was better than ours. <laughs> well, that's great. That's quite a compliment. Yeah, you know, incredibly kind of <laughs> point of pride. Uh, yeah. It's like the, getting some of the inside baseball stories here. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I want to move on to one other, uh, or not just one other, but another topic here. And one of the things that, uh, you know, compelled me about the book is that it, uh, treats sexuality pretty effectively. And I've, I've featured a number of scholars on this podcast, um, who study sexuality, people like Laurie Marhofer, or recently I did an interview with Javier Semper Vendrell and, Clayton Wisnant uh, and Heike Bauer and, and several others actually. And, um, and so you feature queer sexuality in your depiction of the relationship between Marta Muller and Anna Lenka. Um, and, and in the process, you're able to kind of put a spotlight on the impact of paragraph 175. So, you know, I might, might have you talk about that, but the, you know, but sexuality is just kind of a broader theme anyway, you know um, you have kind of another maybe transgressive relationship uh, between uh, Pola Mossett and Kid Hogan, which is transgressive because it was an interracial relationship. Um, and I might have been projecting as I was reading the book, you know, because I'm, I'm interested in this aspect of the era, but it, it seemed like, you know, you were also capturing this tension between some of the momentum, which is very complicated, uh, but you know, toward progressive viewpoints on sex that was going on, especially in Berlin and other cities, and then the backlash uh, against that as well. But uh, I, just more than anything, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on why uh, you made sexuality such a central part of the book, what inspired you to do that, and why you thought you did it uh, well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I think the other thing that happened when I when I I was just making plans before I drew the first page. I was making um, I was thinking about what I how how I wanted to approach the story overall. And um, 
like I said, I had this kind of notion that Kurt and Marta would be words and pictures. And then the other thing I did was I made lists of the kinds of things I wanted in the story. And I, I think <clears throat> because I was so excited about the potential of comics to, I, I also wanted to explore that potential and I wanted to figure out like um, what kinds of things you, how, how would comics be used to address a variety of subjects? Um, and I had lists of things like um, uh, the scent, the five senses, you know, um, sight, smell, hearing, touch, taste, uh, maybe the sixth sense, right? Such like some other kind of um, uh, form of perception. How does comics? How do you? How do you? How do you use comics to to show what an apple pie smells like? You know what I mean? Like, how do I use this medium to conjure these different things? And among the, I think the the, the goal was like to create as rich a portrait of human experience as I was capable of. Um, and one really big part of that, and one really. Um, to my mind, very interesting and compelling part of that is sexuality and how people um, figure out who they are, um, uh, personal identity, and how they um, express that. Uh, it was just something that, uh, I guess something that's always been interesting to me as an adult, something that I um, did a fair amount of exploring myself with in my college years. And then when I was living in Seattle in the nineties, there was like a really thriving art and queer scene. And I was um, involved in that. And uh, since that was sort of all in the hopper, uh, it all kind of, I think emerged naturally as I told this story, like because I had this improvisational approach, certain characters get into situations or express, you know, you see them, engaging with or expressing or trying to figure out their sexuality in the course of the story, because I felt like that's where they were at. And it was just part of the palette, you know, it was like in all the, the kind of, in the kind of spectrum of human experience, that's, that's a, a, a big part of it that in my experience growing up, wasn't really talked about, you know, like, um, so I wanted to kind of get into that and do the same thing I described before, which is like, put myself in those people's shoes. Like, um, there's a member of Kid Hogan's band who's gay and who finds himself in Berlin, which was like a thriving gay, um, uh, you know, home of the first gay village in the world. And, <laughs> um, and this, this uh, black man from America finds himself there and like, what, you know, like, <laughs> what's he going to feel like in that situation? Um, I'm also fascinated by cities as um, places where, where populations uh, uh, gather and um, people from outside of the city come to the city to find people like them, like themselves, um, to find their um, their social or cultural or um, gender identity group, right? Like when you grow up in a small town and you're like the only gay person you know of, then moving to a city allows you to to meet up with those people. So the whole the whole what a city is, every aspect of what a city is was totally fascinating to me how, how a city grows up um the organic nature of a city regardless of the amount of planning that goes into it how it just kind of grows out on its own and then these communities these human communities that form when they find each other all that was super interesting and there you know there are a few kind of greater examples of that in berlin in the 20s than people who were um engaged with you know there was the institute uh, i can't remember the name of the institute the, yeah, um, magnus hirschfeld yeah, that, that one. Yeah. And um, mm -hmm. um, it was just among the stuff that I read when I was researching, um, 
it, 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 it just sort of naturally rose to the surface as a subject that I wanted to uh, engage with and not, you know, clearly connected to everything else that was going on at the time too. Right. Like, yeah. Um, when you kind of work against or express yourself against the norms of your culture, uh, you know, first of all, it's interesting that a place existed where you could do that. And then, but then of course, eventually you are going to run up against the, um, the oppression that, that, um, that stuff that always, that historically has accompanied that, that stuff. Um, so it was just, it was just one of those things I was interested in. I find, you know, that subject endlessly fascinating. Um, and I wanted to, to take a couple different, you know, in the end, Marta, is Marta a lesbian? I, you know, it's, Marta is one of these people whose maybe identity is not super um, defined. And that was interesting too. Like not only is yep. she exploring that, but also for women in Berlin, in Germany at the time, they had all these options that they hadn't 10 years before. So, yeah, and that's part of that, this kind of opening up of, of possibility. And I think, I think, I think generally speaking, the work that I'm most excited about when I'm making art is this sense of, is something with this sense of possibility and potential. And I think Berlin is like such an amazing example of that, like a place that is so, at that time, was so full of possibility for so many people in so many different ways. Um, and it went a particular way, but in that, in that <laughs> period of time, um, and I think I relate this to my experience in Seattle in the 90s when like, the music scene was taking off and yeah. um, there's some kind of resonance between those two, those two things. Um, that's the stuff that I'm really um, compelled by. Well, I'm going to take you from a sense of possibility to tragedy here. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, but I, <laughs> I was really struck by how you opened the book with this image of a, you know, member of the the National Socialist Party sleeping on a train, right? <laughs> like you had this sleeping menace, you know, <laughs> that we all knew was going to emerge uh, by the end. Um, and but but again, it's just one of these these uh, frames from the book that that you know, just captures things right in a way that, that it would be difficult to do with text. And uh, of course the book ends with a, a number of your protagonists, you know, in despair, uh, you know, uh, Kurt, Kurt Severing particularly, uh, you know, but uh, um, you know, along the way we get a sense of how the party uh, appealed to certain characters. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a chance to take a whack at, you know, the, <laughs> the million dollar question, but, you know, how does your vision of Berlin in the twenties help us to understand why the Weimar experiment failed and ended so tragically with, with Hitler's rise to power? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's a big question. You can feel free to just tell me to go away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I you know, there's there's I I think a lot of people have written more in depth on that subject. It's interesting that this book gets taught in history classes and um, that it won that award for um, that you mentioned at the top of the yeah top of the hour. Um, I'm not a historian, and I'm not um, you know like coming at it from the artist angle. It's like you have all this stuff that you're engaging with, and you're it's it feels exploratory, and it feels like yeah, I'm trying to come to an understanding, but by no means did I arrive at any answers <laughs> to those kinds of questions, right? Like, yeah. what could have happened? Well, I guess maybe the terms of the Treaty of Versailles could have been less 
onerous. <laughs> Maybe if Berlin, if Germany had not been, you know, like uh, uh, so uh, deeply punished for its. Uh, its actions, maybe it wouldn't have come back with such uh, vengeance. Like, um, there's just any number of factors, right? There's unfortunately no way that I could that I could answer that, and it's been absolutely um, uh, soul racking and um, intense to watch the stuff that's been playing out in our own country in the past four years, um, and to see the ways that to see the resonances that exist, to see the connections between you know based. Stephen Miller, who I think of as like a reincarnation of Joseph Goebbels, <laughs> and and then these things that are totally different and totally couldn't have happened then, and um, uh, and to see how uh, you know things like the technology of our time has completely affected um, yeah. the way that all works, and to think about how the technology of that time um, had similar impacts um, in a different way. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. think I could. I, I am not the person to answer that it's, question. Well, it's, in some ways, I think it might be interesting, you know, as someone who didn't come into it with a clear theory of the case, like many historians do, and we yeah. all still are, we all argue about this. None of us really can reach yeah. consensus, you know. Uh, but you, like the, you know, if you just think about Kurt Severing's uh, uh, kind of helpless observation, right, of everything falling apart, you know, everything that he valued falling apart, uh, and you could just so. Uh, or at least I, I, I could so empathize, right, with uh, this keen observer of politics who cared so deeply, right, and just, you know, falling into despair over what was happening um, that, uh, you know, maybe not having a theory of the case helped you, uh, helped you capture that even more clearly. Yeah, I mean, I read everything that was out there about, you know, um, people looking back and, and trying to kind of take it all apart and um, come up with some answers. And yeah. um, there was there's a lot of you know interesting and, and um, good stuff out there, but I never got to the point, and I still don't feel like I'm at the point where I could. <laughs> my 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 kind of the thing that I end up, my whole relationship to this stuff is very experiential. It's very um, you know like when I over the course of writing the book, most of my studios were in the basement, and every time I would. I'd get my morning cup of coffee and go down the stairs. And when I went down the stairs, I was going back in time and I was going back, in, I was going into my own unconscious, right? I was tapping into mm -hmm. not only like um, um, my, the stuff that I had read, the kind of conscious things I had absorbed intellectually, but like my sense and my feeling about what might've been going on at the time and how that related to my own moment. Um, so processing all of that it, it all happens on like a, um uh it doesn't happen on this kind of intellectual level where i can even articulate it's it's all in the, in the realm of feeling um and so i mean it kurt in a lot of ways if there's any character in the book that reflects my own um perspective or my own personality it would be him um the kurt and marta both um kind of have aspects that are very much like me but um when he's in those moments of despair that's definitely uh um you know that purple prose that comes out of him is is me talking <laughs> 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 I, and i think that the impression that i get you know like people as you can imagine on this on the book tours i've done people have been like what connections do you see, what parallels do you see between the contents of your book and what's happening in the world today and i can never <laughs> 
I can, you can point, sure, you can point to parallels, but like the thing that I end up feeling is like this force, this aspect of human nature, which has been present throughout history and kind of rose and dominated during that time and then was like pushed down. Like I see it like a giant snake moving through time. <laughs> <laughs> and that snake was pushed out of sight and, um, and then gradually kind of um, rose up again and, and um, came back with a vengeance um, as we've seen. And for so many different factors, which I can't go into here, but um, that's this kind of sense that I had. And I think that when I was going down my basement and traveling back in time and tapping into that, I was kind of feeling the movement of that snake. Like I was sensing the kind of vibrations of that creature as it moved through our world and um, how to like, get a handle on it at root. It's just like how to do something about that now. Um, you know, it's the fifth element. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's love. <laughs> I'm a total hippie in that respect, but like, you know that Donald Trump never got any love growing up. <laughs> had horrible repercussions for the world. Um, um, yeah, how you, how you, um, how you find it in your heart to find love for a proud boy. I don't know. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, the, I, I do want to ask you a little bit about uh, the possibilities of this book for, for the classroom. And um, I, I really like uh, if, if people in our audience are like me, you know, and I, they probably have already used graphic resources in their, in, in their uh, courses. I, I really enjoy it. You know, I've, used classics like Art Spiegelman's Mouse, but I've also gotten into, you know, Oxford University Press has this series of graphic histories where scholars get paired with this graphic artist, Liz Clark. Uh, and so, you know, Trevor Getz's Abina and the Important Men, I just thought was, was, was brilliant. And then there've been others in that series, Ronald Schechter's Mendoza the Jew and Michael Vann's The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just, I like consuming this stuff. I like Joe Sacco's work and mm -hmm. Marjane Mar Mar Satrapi's Persepolis is interesting. For, um, there's a new one. I can't remember the name of the author. Uh, two new ones, actually, on Rosa Luxemburg and another one on Hannah Arendt. Um, so I, it's just my sense that graphic books are being used more in the classroom now than at uh, most times in the past. Maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, no, you're absolutely kind of right. You're anecdotal. Right. Yeah. But uh, I was wondering, yeah, just do you have a good story like from someone who's used your book or have you heard about someone who's used it in, in an interesting way? Um, yeah, I've showed up for um, I've, I've spoken to classes in different in different places at different times. I mean, generally, it's part of like a history curriculum or um, sometimes it's, part, you know, it, the nice thing about it is that it's it does seem to get applied in a variety of ways, which is really, really great. Um, not, not, you know, I haven't encountered anything that was particularly inspiring. Uh, it's all been really, uh, it's all crazy because it's so unexpected. Like when I set out to make this thing, I wasn't ever imagining it would go anywhere. So to see it, <laughs> to have it be taught in classrooms um, by people who I respect is really remarkable to me. Um, and uh, I think the most interesting one that I encountered was somebody teaching at um, Bennington, who was using it as a text to explore 
architectural spaces. <laughs> huh, interesting. <laughs> Which is not something that, you know, I, had, I draw a lot of buildings. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's true. And it's almost all of my buildings are based on, you know, actual buildings that I could find reference for. Um, but the focus, I think it was actually, if I'm remembering right, it was um, it was a German class, like a German language class, and they were using the book, you know, to help people with the whole book would happen in the whole class would happen in German, and um, but the thing that they were using my book to discuss was um, built spaces and how people move through them and the effect that they have on something like uh, a visual narrative like that. So that was kind mm-hmm. of the most you know kind of out there example. Yeah, excellent. Um, well, at this point, I've really taken up a lot of your time today. So I'm going to end with a traditional New Books Network question. And we always like to pe- ask people what they're working on now. But of course, I'm always a little cautious during the pandemic since everyone's lives have been so disrupted. I don't know if people are able to work on the projects they want to work on. But uh, are you uh, working on something interesting now? And uh, yeah, how you know uh, if the pandemic has permitted you to work uh, uh, on something new. Yeah, well, I'm really fortunate in that um, a cartoonist life, you know, the, the difference in my life pre and, and in pandemic is not that great. <laughs> not much I work in my house most of the time. I don't see a lot of people besides my family. I do teach at the at a place called the Center for Cartoon Studies. And thankfully, we were able to continue um, in-person meeting according to Vermont state guidelines. So um, my job still is intact and I've been able to maintain that stuff. So my life hasn't really changed that much, you know, beyond like looking for uh, trying to buy toilet paper and yeast like everybody else. (laughs) Um, The thing I'm working on now, right now at the immediate moment, I am trying to um, crowdfund two role-playing game projects, which is kind of like a side passion of mine. But my next graphic novel is um, also on the drawing table. And that is, um, it's going to be much shorter and it's going to be in color. So this is running against Ooh. my whole idea that like black and white <laughs> is the best. Um, I want, I've never done a full color comic of any length. So I'm interested in that. And it takes place in um, Arizona in 1865. And it follows, huh. it's kind of, I grew up reading Western comics and I'm interested in the Western as a genre, except that I want to kind of deconstruct it and um, tell a story from the point of view of the people who are usually in the background of traditional Western stories. So the main character is a 16 year old um, Mexican Irish girl. And uh, it's just about her adventures as she and some friends try to go warn um, Geronimo that the, um, the U S army is coming for him. Huh? Um, and well, it's great because I don't have to draw any buildings. It's all desert. <laughs> no, no more arch- architectural classrooms for that one, huh? That's right. There's <laughs> most. I think there's going to be a couple of tents at the most. <laughs> but I do have to learn how to draw horses. That's the hard part. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. So I'll look forward uh, to, to 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 seeing that and reading that when it comes out. And. Um, yeah, I just want to, at this point, thank you for giving us your time today, Jason. And thanks for being on the show. It was my pleasure, Michael. Great. And to our audience, you've been listening to an episode in New Books and German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Jason Lutz. We discussed his recent book entitled Berlin, published with Drawn and Quarterly in 2019. 
Uh, I hope that all of our listeners uh, are as well as can be expected in the circumstances. Please stay healthy and thank you for tuning in. And we hope you'll continue to listen. Thank you.